0: Coming up on the Mission Readiness Podcast.
1: There's this problem that we're having with recruiting right now that nobody's talking about. And as you know, in 2018, the Army missed its recruiting quota by about 6,000. And and they, I think, have struggled ever since. And it has not been a big topic of conversation. Um, For a variety of factors, recruiting in the United States is just becoming more and more difficult. And we can talk about those. Uh, It's got to do with the eligible pool of people. It's got to do with demographics, the economy, all kinds of things. And our recruiting future, whether we want to admit it or not, I think is gloomy right now, unless America uh, takes some action uh, to fix the picture.
0: Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Rich Gross and Mission Readiness National Director Ben Goodman.
2: Welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. I'm your host, Rich Gross. With me, as always, the National Director of Mission Readiness, Ben Goodman. Ben, how are you?
0: I'm great, sir. How are you?
2: I'm doing well. Thank you. Our guest today is Lieutenant General Tom Spore, who is a longtime member and has done some great things for Mission readiness. He
0: has, you know, his in his day job, he's the director for the Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. Um, And at Heritage, a few years ago, he hosted a great panel with mission readiness members um, on the issue of of our future readiness. He's led our runs with the General on on Capitol Hill, and he's a member of our Nutrition and National Security Speakers Bureau. So he's all about solving America's recruitment crisis, and he's going to talk with you about a new paper he's written at Heritage about this very issue.
2: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I read his uh his opinion piece in the Washington Times, and that's that's really wet my appetite to learn more. So without further ado, let's talk to Lieutenant General Tom Spore. Our guest today is retired Lieutenant General Tom Spohr. General Spohr served in the Army for over 36 years and was the commandant of the Army's chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear school, where he was responsible for policy, training, and strategy. Later in his career, General Spore served in senior leadership positions in the Pentagon, responsible for charting the Army's future year financial plans and developing equipment modernization strategies. In 2011, General Spohr served as the Deputy Commanding General for U.S. Forces Iraq in Operation New Dawn, where he successfully oversaw the safe withdrawal of all U.S. forces and equipment from Iraq ahead of schedule, one of the most complex and logistically intensive operations ever attempted by the U.S. military. General Spohr is currently the Director of the Center for National Defense At the Heritage Foundation and advisor to the board of directors at Mission Solutions Group, Incorporated. Tom, welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast.
1: Thank you, Rich. Glad to be here.
2: Well, start out maybe by telling us about your upbringing and what inspired you to serve.
1: Yeah. So I didn't come from a a family that had a huge history of military service. My uncles had served in World War II uh, in the Navy. And so this was not something that was a family tradition. But when I was in, in college at at William and Mary, they had an ROTC program. And frankly, I needed the money. And frankly, they had a couple of classes I liked, like orienteering, which kind of brought me in there. And then, uh, you know, I never even, uh, you know, I was in ROTC. I'm not sure I was gonna go on active duty, but I chose to do so right at the last moment. Had no intention of making this a career, but I, I just loved it. And it turned out I was moderately good at it. And so I remember, sitting around the kitchen table with my wife at the four or five year mark. And she said, well, if you're loving it so much, why would we just get out automatically? And that turned into uh, 36 years.
2: Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, tell me a little bit more about Operation New Dawn. That must've been a massive undertaking. What was that experience like and what did you learn from it?
1: You know, it's it just profoundly honored to be a part of that team over there in Iraq. You know, we had the mission to get all the equipment and all the people out of Iraq, and frankly, we had the U.S. military had built up tons of stuff in Iraq. It was it was as if as if we never had plans to leave because we had brought so much stuff there—vehicles, equipment, supplies. I remember opening up a a, con, a container, filling it top to bottom with board games like checkers and Monopoly and things like that. You know, and so uh, we had the task to get all that stuff out. To make sure that the equipment, you know, maintained accountability. We didn't lose any people, either to enemy action or to an accident, and to also leave the ground, the, the facilities we had better than we found them. And so, you know, a lot of Iraq was never an environmental paradise, but we vowed to kind of clean it up, get the, the trash pits and everything in a reasonable state of affairs. And so it was really about executing a plan which had been written before I got there and then adjusting it as the requirements met but we got all 56,000 people and over 100,000 vehicles and tens of thousands of containers out safely and it's really I think a success uh, for the US military.
2: No, it is a, an incredible success. And you've had some success since leaving the military, since retiring, worked on a wide variety of research projects. Could you provide us with an overview of the topics you've researched that have kept you busy since your retirement from the military?
1: Yeah, it, I I really have a broad uh, number of interests. They range from the defense budget. That's kind of I worked on that when I was in the Pentagon, so I, I maintain an an interest in that, including figuring out how to save money, which is a, a super hard problem. Uh, military strategy that remains an interest of mine. Uh, personnel. I don't know why, because I never did any real personnel jobs uh, in the in the army here at the Heritage Foundation, I also cover the Army portfolio. And so we have somebody that covers down on each service, and I write about Army issues. Um, I wrote an article, or I guess a report rather, in 2018, that really is kind of aligns with what mission readiness does. And that is about the worrisome trends of of today's youth and being able to not qualify for military service. And so a, a wide range of stuff I write on, and that's one of the things I love about working here is that I'm not you know, pitch and hold into one particular area.
2: Well, I'm glad you brought up that paper because that was one of the things, obviously, we want to talk to you about. You recently had a piece in the Washington Times entitled The Looming National Defense Crisis No One Is Talking About. And of course, that research paper that you mentioned, which was titled Improving America's Long Term Military Recruiting Outlook. And in both of them, you discuss why the Pentagon is struggling to attract qualified volunteers to serve. Could you highlight for our listeners the current recruitment environment and some of the factors that are causing this recruitment crisis and, and those impacts on national security?
1: can, Yeah, and so I think there's this problem that we're having with recruiting right now that nobody's talking about. And as you know, in 2018, the Army missed its recruiting quota by about 6,000. And, and they, I think, have struggled ever since, and it has not been a big topic of conversation. For a variety of factors, recruiting in the United States is just becoming more and more difficult. And we can talk about those. Uh, It's got to do with the eligible pool of people. It's got to do with demographics, the economy, all kinds of things. And our recruiting future, whether we want to admit it or not, I think is gloomy right now, unless America uh, takes some action uh, to fix the picture. And part of the trouble is the Pentagon, the army, the services, they don't look long term they they have a very much of a short term focus where they worry about how to make mission for the next fiscal year and that's and so they're very good at increasing the bonuses the incentives adding more recruiters into the mix maybe coming up with a special program or two but when it comes to a big strategic problem like we are going to have trouble attracting enough recruits there's not there are no mechanisms in place to make those kinds of adjustments i think right now
2: well, one of the factors you talk about quite a bit is the propensity to serve in the military. And I, I'd like for you to discuss that trend. What have you seen and how has that changed uh, for the military service over the years?
1: Yeah, propensity is has kind of hovered or in the low teens for, you know, and this is the percentage of people that express an active interest in joining the military. And it's never been a terribly high number in American society. But I worry it's going to be going down in the coming years. And there's a number of factors that weigh into that. One is the number of veterans in society. And veterans have always been a key part in persuading America's youth to join the military. Veterans are going down at a rate of about 1.72% a year. And so in 10 years, we're going to be down 17% of the veterans we have currently now. And they're they're big factors, whether it's a family member or somebody you know or an uncle like me, uh, in in telling young people to consider military service Uh, civics education has never it has never been great it's it's really in a bad state of affairs and so it's hard to convince somebody to join the military if they don't even have a a a basic sense of obligation towards their country and i think today's youth kind of lack that most can't there's a high number of people that can't even name one branch of the government 37 percent can't tell us can't tell somebody what the rights are contained in the first amendment I'll I'll tell you one that's really bothersome to me right now, and that is, you know, I don't know about you, Rich, but we have always prided ourselves in the military with the confidence the American people have in the U.S. military. And it has always been the highest rated American institution that Americans have the most confidence in. That's no longer the case right now. I just checked it, and the Gallup poll has Americans that either have a a good amount or a great amount of confidence in the military is 69%. And that's gone down 10 points in the last decade or so, or now today, small business enjoys a position of higher confidence than the U S military. And I, I just just hate to even say that because that is, that is, uh, I mean, I love small business. I love the local hardware store and all those kinds of things. Don't get me wrong, but I want the U S military to enjoy the highest position of confidence from its citizens. And we're not, we're not there right now. And all these, this confluence of factors I think is, is, weighing against the propensity of American youth. I mean, if if it's not highly respected institution and we don't have these other factors helping us, I just, I think recruiting is going to become even harder than it is today.
2: That is definitely a troubling statistic. And I, I hadn't actually heard that yet. So I'm, I'm glad you raised that for our listeners. What recommendations do you ultimately make in your paper?
1: Yeah, a number of them. I think I probably have 10 or 15 recommendations. I'll tell you some of the biggest ones. And that is, I think military recruiters have to meet American youth where they are today. And now, let me explain that. And that means, you know, right now you have to show up at the recruiter's office essentially able to make, meet all the requirements that we have. Uh, you have to be of the right body, fat you have percentage. You have to be the right height. You have to be the right weight. All those kinds of things. There are some informal programs that recruiters run, you know, after hours, that type of thing where they make. Conduct some exercise with potential recruits, but those aren't sanctioned by the military. They're not funded, and these are this is things that people recruiters do in their off time. I think we need more official programs that for youth that want to join the military that we would we would do this as a part of an official military program where we offer them exercise and and advice about how to lose weight and get more fit. I I don't think we can wait until they come into our office and judge them there. I think we have to reach out to to where they sit and get them and help them meet these goals that we have. I think we have to study why youth are becoming more and more unable to qualify for military service. What is driving these factors that that are causing people to be ineligible for military service? We know what they are, but we haven't studied how how to reduce them and make them better. And then I'll I'll be honest, Rich, you know, I don't see many role models, national role models, anybody, frankly speaking, on the benefits of uh, military service. And so, you know, I I think about all the great people that have worn the uniform or national leaders and I, you know, nothing in recent times, do I remember any of them speaking publicly about the value of, of service. You know, when I think about role models like General Dunford, you know, the... Uh, the former uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, impeccably physically fit, running marathons. And I think, would you know, what if that guy was out in American high schools talking about what he got from military service and what they could potentially get? Um, I don't think we're capitalizing on all these leaders that we have. And then I have some lesser suggestions. I don't think we're getting what we can out of our junior ROTC programs. There are some 3,300 junior ROTC programs in the United States. We, the U.S. taxpayer, the U.S. government spends over $300 million a year on these junior ROTC programs. They're in so many of our high schools, and I don't think we're capitalizing on the value that those programs, if they were better managed, better run, uh, could provide to our military.
2: Uh, Those are some great recommendations. And and of course, many of them uh, align very closely, as you've noted, with what Mission Readiness is trying to do. And in fact, several years ago, you moderated a discussion with Mission Readiness members, the Heritage Foundation, U.S. Army Recruiting Command, and Congressman Don Bacon from Nebraska himself, a retired Air Force One star what do you think the public perception of the military is today? How is it recruiting impact, and why is it important to continue stressing these challenges to the public and to our decision makers in Congress?
1: Yeah, that, that was a great public event that you mentioned, and Congressman Bacon was great to to appear. He's a he's a super patriot on this topic. I worry, uh, I worry that the United the military has kind of taken a hit this past year with the the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think that was. A shocking view of the military that um, was portrayed to the American public, one that they were not prepared, I think, to to see happen. And so I, I worry about that impact on the military. You know, they're they're still very viewed favorably, one of the highest you can say favorably uh, viewed institutions in America. But I, it's not something I think we can take for granted. We can't say, well, we've got this great pool of confidence and we can always bank on it. It's it's the thing where you have to kind of. Uh, nourish and cherish it, and and make sure it stays uh, well invested. And so, you know, we can't we can't take the American support for granted. And I and I worry in the coming years as we try and recruit the people that we need for the military, that that support's not going to be there unless we take positive, um, impactful measures to kind of keep renewing this this view that the American people used to have. And and I'm now worried about. It.
2: One of the things that those of us who know you know is that you don't just talk the talk, you walk the walk. And you're very good about personally modeling good behavior and showing why it's important to be fit, to be well-educated, et cetera. And you've hosted yourself several run with the general events on Capitol Hill that have always included mission readiness members and members of Congress, and you run the National Mall together. Why are you so passionate about modeling physical fitness? and, And what do you think about the importance of role models?
1: yeah I'm, i am I am sold on that way of leadership that if if you can't do it yourself, then don't tell me to do it that way. You have to actually show it and uh, I do the same thing over here at the Heritage Foundation. We have about sixty or seventy interns every semester, and every semester we go down the national mall and I talk to them about, hey you're you know you what you do is impactful, and you're whether you're a leader in your workplace or whether you're just a parent or whatever you do how you model these habits can make a difference. And so, you know, it's like that butterfly effect, you know, you don't think the wings of a butterfly are going to have a big effect, but you know, I tell people of a class of 60 or 70 interns, if just one or two pick up the habit of running and pick up the, the, the idea of physical exercise, you know, I will be completely happy because that's this, this problem of um, of unfitness and obesity you know, it's not going to get solved with some new federal program. It's going to be, you know, a whole of society kind of thing where where parents and schools and governments and states and everybody has to do their part if we ever hope to turn these trends around. And so, I, you know, I know it's not much, but I, I try and do what I can uh, to promote that idea.
2: No, that's great. Well I want to ask you the two questions we ask all of our podcast guests. The first one, what's one habit or behavior you've developed during the pandemic, either personal or professional, that you'd like to continue doing once it's over?
1: I don't know about you, Rich, but you know when we were in the height of it, you know, we were all virtual and now we're kind of back in the office here and so I would I scheduled half hour um check-ins with my team which at the, first, at the first couple of weeks just felt like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm talking to these people so much. They must be so tired of me and I, I'm getting tired of them. But uh, we actually got a lot of work done and I figured out, hey, this this is actually working. We're getting more papers done, more research done than we ever got before. And so I kind of, I'm just not taking for granted now um, this thing where you talk to your people and and talk to them you know, uninterrupted for 15 or 20 minutes or something like that. I don't do half hour check-ins anymore, but we we do 15 or 20 minutes. And I had always taken for granted that if they ever had a question, they'd come see me. But, but I don't think they were gonna do that. And this, this is working out better than I had thought before I uh, even know about COVID.
2: Second question we ask all our guests, what books have you been reading lately or books that you might recommend to our listeners?
1: Yeah, thanks. I don't know. I'm like, probably like a lot of people, I have about four books going at any given time, two by the bed, one by the couch, then you know, that kind of thing. One I just finished, it's probably been out for a while, it's called In the Garden of Beasts by Eric Larson. It talks about Germany, 1933, 1934, and how the, the evilness of Hitler was just coming, you know, to the notice of people. Thought, people thought, hey, maybe this guy has got the ability to turn Germany around, and his evilness wasn't quite uh, apparent at the time. And then as that year 33 turned into 34, it just came out more and more how him and his henchmen were evil. I just, I love that feeling of a coming storm and and how some people saw it and other people were completely buffaloed uh, by it. Then there was another book I read maybe a month ago by Jeff Schlosser, Um, retired army two-star commanded the um, 101st uh, Airborne, in Afghanistan. And it talks about his, I think it was 18 or 18 months in combat in Afghanistan and how he kind of went about that. And the title Marathon War is kind of a, a takeoff on the fact that he uh runs marathons and and he and and in his book Marathon where he talks about the runs he would take at uh in Afghanistan, you know, around Bagram airfield and stuff like that. I just I thought it was really good, good reading and I enjoyed it a lot.
2: Two great recommendations. Thank you. Well, if our listeners want to learn more about the Heritage Foundation or your work in particular, where do they go?
1: Yeah, so I would direct, we have a wonderful website, heritage.org, and I would love to engage uh, personally with any listeners that want to follow up. My email is thomas.spoehr, S-P-O-E-H-R, at heritage.org.
2: Fantastic. Well, thank you, Tom, for taking the time to share with our Mission Readiness listeners.
1: It was, it was my pleasure to do so, Rich.
2: Ben, I really enjoyed talking to Tom. I. You know, there's so many issues affecting our ability to recruit that I wasn't really tracking. I mean, I knew the basics of nutrition and education, and and you know, sometimes the trouble that kids get into that that uh, may prohibit them from serving. But I didn't know about some of the other factors that really are affecting uh, our recruitment.
0: Absolutely, you know, I just really enjoyed diving through the paper, enjoyed the conversation today because, of course, at Mission Readiness, we talk a lot about solving the major barriers that keep kids from being able to join in the first place. What I keep going back and forth on in my head is this concept that uh, he said, we're going to have 17% fewer veterans in 10 years. Now, General Spohr, of course, was talking about the impact that that has on Um, reputation for the military ability to to recruit, but I think a lot about the employers that like to hire veterans and rely on hiring veterans, veterans who volunteer in our communities. I mean, um, you know, there are second and third order effects of a smaller recruiting pool. Super interesting um, and and looking forward to to continuing to see how General Spohr works with mission readiness on this issue and continues to explore it through his own work at Heritage.
2: No, couldn't agree more. And and something you said earlier, I I would like to see us get back to some of those runs with the general and and get out with members of Congress out on the National Mall. Well, thanks for listening to the Mission Readiness podcast. My co-host is Ben Goodman. Today's show was written and produced by Ben Goodman, Abby Ware, and John Connolly. For more about Mission Readiness or to find an archive of every episode of the podcast, visit strongnation.org. The program is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, give us a positive review, and tell your friends about the program. Until next time, thank you for supporting our work at Mission Readiness to strengthen national security by ensuring kids stay in school, in shape, and out of trouble.